We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. You know, once upon a time, therapy and religion were considered to be separate compartments of the human experience. Not only that, but in traditional Western religions, psychology was at one time, and not so very long ago, considered to be, as it has, was put, of the devil. But now, more and more, we're beginning to see a mixing and blending of religion, spirituality, and therapy. In fact, some traditional religions have opened their own therapy centers, of which the therapeutic practice is very clearly skewed along the lines of religious traditional understanding of sacred texts. At the same time, many other practitioners of therapy are inviting the spiritual process into therapy without any particular leaning. Many more workshops are being conducted around the nation teaching practitioners how to practice therapy that not only allows but encourages the client's participation in his or her own spiritual experience, even teaching such things as mindfulness and meditation. Our guest this week has much to share with us about this phenomenon, particularly as it relates to two things. One, the power of relationship, and two, psychoanalysis, and Buddhism. Pilar Jennings uh, is a Ph.D. and the author of Mixing Minds, the Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Obviously, relationship is at the center of both the practice of religion and the practice of therapy. But the question she raises, raises is, how do we engage both practices in a therapeutic setting without reducing either to the terms of the other? Pilar Jennings is a writer and researcher who has focused on the clinical applications of Buddhist meditation practice. She received her Ph.D. in psychiatry and religion from Union Theological Seminary and has been working with patients and their families through the Harlem Family Institute since 2004. Prior to this training, she earned a master's degree in medical anthropology from Columbia University and a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary writing from Bernard College. Pilar is a long-term practitioner of Tibetan and Vipassana Buddhism and has studied the senior teachers in both traditions. She's also trained as a Buddhist chaplain through the Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Pilar Jennings lives in New York City. So welcome, Pilar, to uh, the Authentic Living Show. We're so glad to have you today. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to jump right in there and talk about your book. There, you've just covered a tremendous amount of material in your book, and I, I think it has so much to offer. Uh, we're going to sort of talk therapy to ther- therapist to therapist a little bit today, although you you are much more in line with uh, the Ph.D. genre, and I am not. But uh, also we're going to sort of broaden that out a little bit to include 
other religions besides just Buddhism, although you're uh, going to be talking primarily about Buddhism, I want to sort of open that up for the listening audience to consider that when we say the word Buddhism, we're talking about religion. Um, the, uh, the body of literature on therapy in Buddhism has been growing a long time for the past uh, 25 years. Why do you want to add to the conversation through your book, Mixing Minds? Well, one of the primary themes that I address in the book is the, the focus on relationships in both Buddhism and psychoanalysis. Um, and I think when you expand out from Buddhism into religion generally and into all types of therapy, including psychoanalysis, relationship is really at the core of those methods. So how to help people cultivate a more intimate sense of connection with who they authentically are, and then expanding out from there how to cultivate a deeper sense of connection with all other beings, and obviously the people who, who are key players in our lives, so that we have a real sense of meaning. Yeah, so that encompasses the whole, uh, the whole body of relationship, the uh, relationship to yourself, the relationship to whatever your higher power might be. That's right. relationship to uh, the global universe as well. That's right. Yeah, okay. So um, in terms of uh, culture, you know, we, we've all grown up in a culture. Some of us grew up Buddhist. Some of us grew up Baptist. Some of us grew up some other ways. And that tends to be the way we uh, view the world as in, in terms of the way we were raised. You've equi- uh, uh, made a correlation between culture and suffering in the book. I want to talk just a little bit about that. Can you share some of your thoughts on that? Sure. I, I think our... Our approach to suffering and our understanding of whether or not suffering has any meaning is usually culturally determined. Um, so if, if you come from a communal culture, there's a sense that personal suffering is really shared. It's, it's a truly collective experience. If you come from individualistic cultures like those of us in the West tend to come from, um, there's a sense that we are personally responsible for our own suffering. But with that, there tends to be also a lot of shame around suffering. So I think for many of us, there's the covert notion that if we had just gotten things right, you know, if we had just figured everything out and implemented our life plan as we intended, we wouldn't suffer. And so there's, you know, there's a great deal of additional suffering that happens in response to pain and suffering that I think um, can be lessened in communal cultures where there's really a sense of participating in a group experience and not being alone in one's life experience. So how would that look different? Can you say how that might look different in, in the actual behaviors of, of a culture, a collective sort of suffering? Well, I think in individualistic cultures, um, which that would include most contemporary Western cultures, the tendency when there's personal suffering is to first try and minimize it and then to try and distract ourselves from it in some way. So, I mean, this is really the stuff of therapy. So, So many people will come to therapy when they start to feel like they're their coping mechanisms of choice, the way they have typically distracted themselves from pain and suffering, is just no longer working. But most of us will have a variety of of methods we'll use to just try and tune it out. Mm -hmm. 
instead of really sitting with it, honoring its meaning, uh, maybe even asking the suffering for help and understanding what it is we need to learn, Instead, there's really a wish for it to go away, <laughs> to go away as quickly as possible. Right. So, you know, I think for people who are enculturated to be more receptive to suffering, there's more space and time that is built into one's life to be responsive to suffering and try and understand it. Okay, okay. And there's that community of... of um you know, in the South, we have this thing when, when, like, for example, there's a death in the family, everybody brings food. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that sort of collective gathering. But at the same time, I'm also real aware that there's a, while people are bringing food, there's a, um, let's distract, let's not really look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we are so so profoundly enculturated to somehow remove ourselves from pain. Yeah. You know, I think because we do feel shamed, shamed by it, and that's reinforced by this highly medicalized climate where if people are suffering in any way psychologically or mentally, the idea is to, you know, quickly medicate it and try and tamp it down, um, which isn't to say there isn't some value in seeking psychiatric support if somebody is really stuck in the long term in a very painful place. But if that means not exploring the meaning in the suffering, I think we lose a great deal. Yeah, absolutely. Finding some kind of meaning in it does make us not just move beyond it, but, but be able to take, take it with us as we go, sort of. That's right. And, and then potentially to help others explore their particular experience with suffering and, and heal from it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're really only able to help other people with their pain if we have been willing to address our own. Right, right. And, you know, for those of us who were parented by people who were unable or unwilling to address their particular wounds or losses, we're very aware of how they struggle to show up for, for us right. when, when we're not doing so well. So yeah. there's a kind of ethics to healing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and that process does involve um, finding some kind of place within us and without us where we can find some peace in the midst of. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would assume that that has something to do with why you began the practice of Buddhism. And we just have a few minutes before the break, but I want to ask you, what was it that drew you to the practice of Buddhism? Originally, it was my mother. Okay. <laughs> I was a child, and I had the good fortune to... To have a spiritually curious mother, and she brought me to a variety of spiritual communities. Um, And then we enrolled in a Buddhist meditation course together when I was about 10 years old. So so that was my first exposure to meditation and to Buddhism as a tradition. And I just liked it a whole lot. You know, I really enjoyed the silence. Uh, I enjoyed being with adults in silence, which was not an experience I had had much of. Um, And then I I was very curious about the ideas that I was being exposed to. So it stuck, and then as I I grew into adolescence and my early adulthood, I just continued exploring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make some comparisons in the book between the 
the silence and the noise, the sort of clattering noise of the world, mm-hmm. and how there were some different, you lived in two different spaces for a while, and how that was very different for you, in those two different places. Did you ever kind of, were you ever pl- able to get to a place of res- resolution between those two different energies? Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm a New Yorker, um, but have spent quite a bit of time on the West Coast, and I've been exposed to a variety of cultures and a variety of ways of being in the world. And I think ultimately I've been seeking balance, as most people are. And I really appreciate the the richness of stimuli and having a an interesting external world. But I also very much appreciate the importance of having a sense of inner rest, you know, having a, a place internally that I can retreat to if my external world, or especially if my external world is very stimulating. Right, right, right. So you can have a both and, not either or. Exactly. Right. All right. Well, we'll be back right after the break with more from... Pilar Jennings about Mixing Minds, the Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. Stay tuned. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. 
And the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to expanding science beyond conventional paradigms. Founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, IONS is a nonprofit research, education, and membership organization whose mission is supporting individual and collective transformation through consciousness research, educational outreach, and engaging in a global learning community in the realization of human potential. You can join that learning community at www.noetic.org. And we're talking today with Pilar Jennings about her book, Mixing Minds. And Pilar, you, in Mixing Minds, you suggest that uh, many, many people in therapy and Buddhists mistakenly imagine that these two healing traditions are taking people to the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but these practices are different in their goals and methods. Can you tell us a little bit how? Sure. Well, I, I think that there's a common ground between the traditions insofar as both psychotherapy and Buddhism seek to help people enjoy their lives more, uh, feel a sense of tangible meaning, um, feel less burdened by, by historical difficulties or by our, our mental patterns that are destructive in some way. That said, they're very different in their methodologies, and still there are some key differences in the main goal. Um, Generally speaking, therapists seek to really go in close and learn more about the individual experience of a particular patient. So you'd spend a fair amount of time exploring the nuances of how a patient was parented, the siblings in their family, the sociocultural factors. You'd really try and leave no, no stone unturned in terms of their personal experience. And I think for many people in therapy, it's extremely healing to feel known uh, and to trust that there's somebody who's genuinely interested in what you've lived through. Buddhism, in contrast, tends to take a more universal perspective and look at the ways in which all people, regardless of their sociocultural strata, tend to... Uh, relate to their own minds, and tend to interact with their external world. So the, the methods are different with those differing views, and then where, where these traditions are trying to take people while there's common ground also reveals key differences. Um, again, generally speaking, and, and there are many you know, many variations within the psychotherapeutic world. But generally speaking, therapists are trying to help their patients feel more integrated, to really bring into conversation the myriad experiences they've had and the various parts of self that exist. But still, the tendency is not to emphasize real transformation, you know, real joy, And that has something to do with the fact that many people who come to therapy are not showing up off the wings of victory. You know, they're they're there because they're really suffering. Mm -hmm. And there's something in their personal lives that's causing them pain, it's not working, and they need help. You know, and they need help with particulars. Um, Buddhism, and I would say religion, generally speaking, is more focused on really transcending the trappings of our secular consciousness and tapping into a pervasive sense of meaning and liberation. So the, 
the framework is very different. Um, and I think it's not uncommon for people to hope that in their religious lives they'll be addressing their psychological struggles and in their psychotherapeutic process try to, to name where meaning is made. You know, so in other words, do both in one tradition. Mm-hmm. But I think often that doesn't happen. And that's, that's one of the issues that I, I try to address in Mixing Minds. Well, how would you put those two together then? Well, I guess my, my particular vision is not so much to, to conflate these two worlds because they are, I think they are fundamentally different. And yet, each person within, within a religious world or within a psychotherapeutic process has brought their whole being to that experience. So in other words, the religious person is also bringing their psyche to their spiritual and religious path. So I guess what I would like to see more of is increased curiosity from the leaders in both traditions about you know, the elements of their, their patients or their disciples that they might not be fully addressing. So, you know, for therapists to be curious about the spiritual wellness of their patients and for religious mentors to be a little bit more curious about the psychological condition of their congregants or disciples. Right, right. Well, and I am, my listeners know that I am from the South and I live in the Bible Belt, what we call here, lovingly call the Bible Belt. And uh, what I've found to be true is uh, with with regard to traditional Western religion, not from Buddhism particularly, but uh, is that people tend to fold their psychological issues into their religion and it doesn't seem to make much difference in terms of uh, healing psychologically, but it does um, tend to exacerbate whatever spiritual issues they've got. So it it tends to, they, it doesn't work together necessarily unless you're deliberate and conscious about putting them together Mm -hmm. in some kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I think most people in their spiritual and religious communities hope to heal their psychological wounds. You know, so if they're bringing pain that they're experiencing with their partners or their parents or their community members, they're looking for guidance and solace around those very personal struggles. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, you know, particularly if you have a psychologically sensitive minister, pastor, or religious mentor, those, those religious communities and experiences can be psychologically healing. But not always. And I think sometimes what happens is over the course of years, you know, people are hoping that their traumas might somehow be healed just through their religious lives. And there might be some relief, but the core, the core struggles are never fully addressed. Right. Right. Through, through no fault of their own or, or through no fault, really, of their religious mentor. It's just that the whole that system for making meaning, it doesn't have a language for the psyche. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly around sexual abuse, trauma, addiction, you know, the kind of struggles that people tend to bring to their therapist. Right. 
Yeah, and the other the other piece, and this is you can help me know more. I, I, I'm very familiar with Buddhism, but not so much about this particular structure. That whole good evil paradigm that is so prominent in Western religion is not so prominent in Buddhism, as I understand it. And and I do think that good evil paradigm causes I won't necessarily cause is not the right word, but um, adds to some of the dilemma that somebody, for example, who's um, had a sexual trauma and already has carried with them some um, shame Mm -hmm. from that, and uh, then the the religion gets folded into that, and Mm -hmm. the good evil stuff gets wrapped up in there somehow, too, and it becomes very difficult to sort of pull apart those, differentiate those various pieces so you can put them back together in an integrated fashion. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... There, there are many religious teachings in every religion that can sometimes be a little bit fraught. You know, if you're if you're bringing complicated psychological history um, to those teachings, and in Buddhism it's true. There's no there's no concept of inherent evil. Um, the idea is that everything exists in dependence upon constantly changing causes and conditions. Mm. So nothing is inherently uh, fixed in meaning, including our bodies, our identities, our homes. You know, everything is, is always changing. Mm. So one of the, the basic teachings is impermanence. Um, and, and that's true of our mental state as well. You know, that we can be filled with anger and rage and even homicidal urgings one moment, and then the next moment be relatively placid and compassionate, etc. Right. So I think that that can be a very healing idea, you know, that even our abusers are not inherently evil. They're just suffering beings, probably traumatized themselves, um, and and very much struggling with unhealed wounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so when you talk about joy uh, as a part of the paradigm of religion, particularly Buddhist religion, and and that idea is one that says there's more, there's something here, there's something in this wound that can, that I can use to bring me to joy. And uh, and and that makes a whole different um, therapeutic endeavor. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, people want meaning in their lives. I mean, the the great existential analysts like Viktor Frankl, et cetera, This is their basic idea that you know it's it's not just a good professional and personal life that we're after. It's really a sense of meaning. And how we, how we interact with our particular struggles, you know, how we face into the roughest experiences we go through, is actually what creates meaning. You know, that's what builds character, and that's what gives us a sense of what we're made of, what we're capable of. And I think when people have the experience of actually staying conscious in the midst of suffering and moving through it consciously. Interestingly and paradoxically, it tends to bring people to a place of joy. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, there's really a sense of discovering that we had so much more courage, so much more integrity than we normally tap into 
and it's very enlivening, and it leaves us feeling very hopeful about what, what we, we might be able to do in the future. Yes, I agree completely. And it, and it brings us to that deeper place within us where we can find that silence and that peace as well. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people are attracted to Buddhism because they feel it offers the best spiritual practice without the mess of organized religion. But you argue in the book that Buddhism is in fact a religion and that this understanding can be useful to the psychological well-being of its practitioners. So can you say something more about that? Sure. I, you know, there there are many, particularly American Buddhists, who... You know what? I'm going to have to stop you now that I've okay. asked that question. We're going to have sure. to take a break, and we'll be right back after this. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. Want to change your life? The New York Open Center can help. We offer hundreds of ongoing classes, workshops, and professional trainings that heal the body, nurture the spirit, and awaken your true potential. Visit opencenter.org to check out our programs in holistic health, self-development, spiritual practices, creative arts, and much more. With our wellness services, bookstore, and cafe, we're an oasis in the heart of the city. And with Open Center Online Learning, you no longer have to be in New York to take classes. Visit opencenter.org today. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. The Authentic Living Show is also brought to you by the New York Open Center, dedicated to nurturing body, mind, and spirit through holistic learning and world culture. Workshops, classes, and professional trainings, trainings in the arts, holistic health, spiritual inquiry, psychology, and more are offered daily. Faculty this season includes Elizabeth Gilbert, Julia Cameron, Anodia Judith, and Thomas Moore, to name just a few. 
Visit www.opencenter.org to see all that's available at the Open Center as well as their newly created online opportunities. And we're talking today to Pilar Jennings, the author of Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. And just before the break, I had to cut her off as I, right after I asked her the question. I'm going to ask the question again. You've said um, that Buddhism is, in fact, a religion and that this understanding can be useful to the psychological well-being of its practitioners, even though some say that Buddhism is, you know, they want to take the best of the spiritual practice without the mess of organized religion. So you were about to answer that question when I interrupted you. Sure. This is a topic that I'm really enjoying discussing with a variety of people since since I've written Mixing Minds, in part because religion, I think particularly in urban communities, tends to get a bad rap. Um, and it may just be that the the gold, you know, the the fruit, the nourishing elements of religion is just not well understood, particularly by, by people who have not um, found a healthy religious community. And generally speaking, religion is a it's a system for making meaning um, in which there's a sense of sacred reference, you know, sacred variables. Um, but the practice is really about surrender, you know, surrendering and depending upon a community, a religious mentor, a set of teachings. And I'm not talking about submission. So, you know, this is, this is not a, a process of blind faith. It's really a process of discerning who can be safely surrendered to and depended upon. Um, but I think the experience of ritually practicing our capacity for dependency is very liberating and very psychologically nourishing. I mean, it's the reason why people tend to get very excited about intimate relationship because it reawakens all of our longings for dependency. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is always, who am I depending upon? You know, and, and, and how. So I think when, when you try and lift Buddhism out of its religious roots and make it a secular movement, the risk is in dropping the struggle to practice that dependency and, and explore the ways in which it feels uncomfortable, you know, explore our fear around surrender. Um, I think... When we don't do that, we tend to withdraw from the process altogether. We retreat, and often that leaves people feeling very isolated and too alone. Right. So, yeah, and surrender is not a topic that came into the therapeutic practice until uh, AA became much more popular, where you know, the first three steps of the 12-step program involved surrender to some kind of higher power, and that, that concept is now considered to be part of at least um, treatment for addicts and alcoholics, but also one that, that, that is typically considered to be part of religion that sometimes is part of surrendering to aspects of ourselves as well in, in the psychological practice. Would you agree? Absolutely. And a big part of the, the therapeutic process is accepting the reality of our complexity, uh, of the ways in which we've internalized 
a variety of players in our, our history, and they now live inside our psyche. Mm-hmm. And really accepting that we, we are in constant relationship with these people. You know, it doesn't matter if they've died decades ago or they live in a faraway country. They're an integral part of our inner life. So surrender to that reality is the central part of what's healing and therapy. Um, and, and the same thing is really true of the religious process. You know, how to how to accept our own depths and, and to tap into it and to surrender to it rather than to, to live a life of um, either just basic survival or ongoing distraction from that depth. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Is there a, a psychological downside to being an American Buddhist? I think so. I mean, I think generally speaking, there's, there's a shadow side to, to every religious practice. You know, I'm not saying that it's inherently unhelpful or destructive. There's just a way in which every religion and every spiritual practice can intersect with a particular psyche in ways that are unhelpful. And I think for American Buddhists... To, to start with, I mean, if we were not born in this tradition, there's the sense of pursuing something exotic, you know, pursuing something beyond the, our cultural milieu and therefore being kind of special and different because of it. Mm-hmm. So we can get a little bit of narcissistic gratification of being, you know, that unusual person who meditates, yeah, <laughs> you right. know, rather than uh, going to church like everybody else. And I think it's really important for American Buddhists to just mindfully and carefully explore their motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is it that's driving us to continue with this, with this tradition? Is it about hiding from from our cultural milieu? You know, or is it really about exploring the nature of our minds? Right. Again, very well put. So, okay, so... There, right now, there's a big interest in, in um, Buddhist meditation among the, in the Western culture. But I think, and it sounds like you think as well, that there are some misperceptions about what that tradition, the relevancy of that tradition to psychological experience. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. It's a big topic, and it's true. I mean, most, most Americans are somewhat familiar with the notion of Buddhist meditation. So... I mean, if you go to to almost any yoga center, there's some kind of meditation practice. Um, You know, it may be Hindu in nature, but it will be Asian or have an Asian influence. So it's very common, Um, although not particularly well understood. I think most Americans imagine that meditation is about uh, getting rid of stress, uh, learning to relax, uh, and just having an easier time in life. And that's certainly part of it, and it can be a wonderful part of it. But the, the deeper intention of meditation is really about having a tool, a container for going within and exploring the true nature of who we are. Um, so somehow allowing ourselves to be still enough so that we can actually see what's going on inside our own minds. And that's actually not, not a very easy thing to do. <laughs> no, it's not. 
and particularly when um, there's there is um, a lot of one of the things I see as one of the misperceptions about uh, meditation is that you're supposed to get to this center, uh, place where you just sort of bliss out. Right. 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 So, yeah, that's not really trying to help you know yourself, although it feels good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in fact, the the original historical Buddha Shakyamuni identified that as as one of the hindrances, one of the ways in which we can get in our own way is getting attached to those blissed out states. Rather than really doing the harder, more meaningful work of exploring deeply you know, the nature of what it means to have consciousness, and then also what we can do with this consciousness. You know, so to really examine our choices, you know, how, how we are choosing to live our lives, and to deeply reinforce the wish to grow much more identified with our potential and to live out that potential. Right. Right, and that sort of requires what I what I've heard a union term is sort of holding the tension between you know the external voices and the internal uh, things that we've incorporated from the external and and sort of just sit quietly and and find out what's really going on in there. Yeah, I mean it's an extraordinary experience when when people go on Buddhist meditation retreats even if it's just a couple of days, and this is particularly true of silent retreats where there are very, very few distractions. So no cell phone, no computer, etc. And many, many people have the experience of being almost blindsided by what's going on internally, things that they were not at all conscious of. So... I mean, the the power of perception is really quite extraordinary. Yes, and, you know, if we're holding our attention on making a living, taking care of our children, you know, the stuff that tends to consume our waking hours, mm-hmm. it's it's very easy to really have no idea what's going on internally. Right. It is. It is. And, and, and particularly in the Western culture where we're sort of taught that going inside is not acceptable in some kind of way. Well, that's right. We're actually discouraged from too much internal exploration as if it were a kind of Pandora's box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in a way it yeah. is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because most of us are going to find pain, uh, unprocessed anger, you know, difficult feelings. Mm-hmm. But the reality is those feelings get acted out. You know, if we're not conscious of them we're going to enact them passively, and people tend to get hurt by that kind of acting out. Yeah, and we ourselves can hurt ourselves that way, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, just recently Osama bin Laden was uh, killed, and, and, and we've, in this post-9-11 era that we live in, there's been a lot of discussion about... Um, uh, pluralism and uh, the acceptance and tolerance of other religions and lots of arguments and disputes. and uh, uh, So uh, what do you think that Buddhism particularly has to contribute to that religious diversity discussion? And I guess we're going to have to talk about that more after the break as well, but I want to keep that question in mind. So listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back to talk about religious diversity in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. 
Radio for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. You live for the firsts in your child's life. But how do you cope with the firsts that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We're back for the uh, last segment of our show today, talking to Pilar Jennings about the book Mixing Minds, The Power of Relationship in Psychoanalysis and Buddhism. And um, I want to ask you, Pilar, if you will, to just sort of talk with the listening audience about how they might connect with you, your website, any, any, way, any events you got coming up, anything like that that the audience can connect to. Sure. Uh, if people would like to reach me, and I'd be happy to be in conversation with your listeners, uh, they can reach me through my website, which is www.pilarjennings.com. Okay. And that's the best way to reach me. Okay. It All has right. various events listed on that site. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we were talking just before the break uh, about diversity and what Buddhism might contribute to the idea of tolerating religious diversity. So... I just want to let you wax eloquent there on that. Okay. Happy to try and do so. Uh, I mean, it's certainly a topic that is very alive right now, and we are living in a religiously pluralistic society. So there's a real call for people to somehow cultivate a little bit more curiosity about different faith traditions. And one of the main teachings in Buddhism is 
to hold our views lightly, which, which means that we can certainly care about our beliefs. I mean, we all have preferences and beliefs and insight, but to, to not grasp onto them so tightly that we actually get distracted by that grasping and we lose sight of what it is we're holding. Mm. So it's, it's wonderful to have deep faith and to really believe that one's particular religious path is meaningful. But it's also equally important to be, to be curious about the ways in which meaning is made in contrasting faith traditions so that we can pay respect to these differences and so that we can learn from each other. Because the reality is no one tradition has all the answers. <laughs> you know, every tradition has really extraordinary insight that we are so grateful to, to benefit from. But there are always other ways of exploring meaning. Right, and as I've understood, when, when uh, different leaders of religions have, have gotten together and tried to discuss this whole concept of, of pluralism and what that means and diversity and what that means and um, trying to uh, bridge some of the gaps and some of the fears that might be there between different religions, it turns out that what most people are afraid of is the ritual that, it's, that surrounds a core belief, not necessarily the core belief. The core beliefs seem to be very similar throughout religious um, sacred texts around the world, but, but the r- rituals around that... And uh, that that fear keeps us from finding out that we do have much more in common than we know. Yeah, I, I think there's real truth to that. I mean, I also think that most of us struggle with difference, you know, which is why we tend to live in communities and marry people who in some way mirror our, our primary identity markers. Um, so it takes practice to to start to feel more comfortable with difference. And, you know, I've recently had the the good fortune to co-teach a course on world religions, and part of the course has been visiting a variety of spiritual communities and going to an Islamic mosque and going to Buddhist temples. And um, when you participate in these rituals, you do start to recognize that these are different inroads to meaning. You know, these are different ways of remembering that there's, there's something extremely valuable in life that we tend to forget. And it's a way of really protecting the time to somehow tap into where meaning is made. And there are just different ways of doing that. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So when you bring that back to therapy, mm-hmm. um, finding meaning in different ways, that means that the therapist might need to be open for the various ways in which a client might need to find or a patient might need to find meaning. I think that's an excellent and really important point. That I mean, therapists are basically called as flexible and spontaneous with their patients as possible and to try and show up uh, for each patient as the patient needs them to show up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and that, that often means letting go of our chosen theories or exploring something that we hadn't anticipated exploring. 
Right. You know, so I'm, I'm in a tradition that doesn't hold up a creator God, but I certainly work with patients for whom God is a significant part of their lives. You know, and I get to explore with them the, the beauty of belief in God. Right. You know, so for me to impose my particular approach to life or to wellness would not be meeting my patient where they're at. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and... and to be able to to do that means that therapy is going to work more in tune with the authenticity of the client instead of the therapist's agenda. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So overall, do you think that therapy works? I think it's an incredibly powerful and healing tool. Um, and, and if I didn't, I, I wouldn't practice it, and I wouldn't have right. spent so many years as a patient. Um, there's There's no doubt that the experience of being authentically known is extremely healing for many people, and it's a real opportunity to bring into relationship the parts of us that are most hidden, you know, and, and have them be lovingly received. I think that's extraordinarily healing. Yeah. Um, I, I would also like to see therapy begin to really appreciate the importance of one's spiritual wellness mm-hmm. and to to not reduce healing to to our families of origin um, but to really open up our notion of where where healing can happen exactly and i think as as that you know that augmentation that larger view takes place within therapeutic circles therapy will become increasingly more healing yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's a good note to close out on, and I know that you've got a, a, a patient to see. So we're going to close out the show now and uh, and just say goodbye to you, and thank you so much for being on our show today. And I would encourage our listeners to go to your website. That's www.pilarjennings.com and uh, learn more about you and your work. So thank, thank you, you so much, Andrea. It's been a real joy to with you. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. And we're going to be talking next week to Colette Baron-Reed for the second time about the treasure map to meaning in your life. So you don't want to miss that. And I want to say to to our listening audience today that um, I would encourage you to explore more about what it is that is spirituality, religion, therapy to you, meaning-making, to bring yourself to the place of meaning-making in your life. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week, the treasure map to meaning in your life with Colette Baron-Reed. And just remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.